previously on Blockbuster. Are you doing all right for money? Yeah, Dad, uh... You're capable of more. Gross, Jim. You're not gonna just reach in there. I'm gonna be sick. Action. Oh. Uh, excuse me, you are Jim Cameron? Uh, yes. Uh, Ovidio Asenetas. We are making a film. I'd love to take you to lunch to talk about it. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. James Cameron was a 13-year-old bookworm, two years younger than others in his grade. Easy prey for bullies until he negotiated a deal with one of the jocks to do his math homework in exchange for protection. Ingenious, really, for his little boring suburb of Chippewa, Ontario. Chippewa was a town just on the other side of Niagara Falls, and you could hear the distant crashing thunder of water rushing all throughout the neighborhood. It was April 1968, and the Canadian winter had finally thawed. That meant lots of after-school adventure and experiments for James, who became a ringleader among his friends and younger siblings. And today, he was organizing a special project. <laughs> How does it fly without wings? Because the heat. Yeah, hot air rises. Oh, yeah. I, I knew that. You know, like a blimp or something. Oh, a zeppelin. Exactly. So we have to glue all these bags together into a big bubble. Then we put the candles underneath it and this. Whoa, that's not too heavy. Not if we get enough candles. We need all the candles. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, you say, roger that. Oh, roger that. Yeah, and then, Mike, you go get the string from the attic. Uh, roger that. James often tasked his little brother Mike with jobs in his neighborhood experiments. And then we need glue. I have glue. No, like super glue. Or maybe tape. Duct tape. Dad has duct tape. Perfect. Let's get it. Sure. Hands in. What do we call our mission? Uh, blimp. Blimp. Oper Operation Blimp. How about hot air balloon? Oh, yeah. Okay. Operation hot air balloon. Ready? Yeah. Break. Break! Break. Okay. So let's lay out the bags. We'll tape them together. Is it supposed to be curved? Yeah, because it's going to be round. Ugh, I found a smaller piece of wood. Oh, that's way better. Yeah. And you guys have the cameras. Yeah. Go ahead. Glue them on. James' engineer father always disapproved of his interest in fantasy and science fiction. But James had learned one thing from his dad. When you're building something, you always give it your all, and you always finish. That's good. That's good. But let's glue on even more. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. This little project made of silvery dry cleaning bags taped together was pure science, and James knew it would make his dad proud. Okay, all the glue should be dry. Let's take it out to the driveway. You got that side? Careful, Mike! <sighs> Lift it up high. Okay, let's put it down here. Mike, can you light the candles? Okay. Good, that's good. The balloon is filling up with hot air, see? Whoa! Whoa! Watch it. Steady. As this shiny, duct-tape-covered balloon slowly inflated with hot air from the candles below its small opening, the boys' faces all lit up with excitement. It was a wrinkled, silvery, pearlescent cloud with strings suspending a box of lit candles underneath it as it started to hover under its own power. Whoa! It's working! It was late in the afternoon by now, and they'd done it, thanks to James' vision. Mission accomplished. It looks like a flying saucer! 
Luther! Wow. James knew his father would be proud of this creative engineering. He'd achieved the miracle of flight with everyday household items and a bit of direction. Whoa! Hey, what? Don't let Whoa. go! Uh, Grab that! Uh, That's when James realized he'd just created something else, a flying firebomb in his neighborhood, rising higher and higher. Oh, I lost it! Whoa! Ah, crap! What do we do? Get the bikes! Mike, get your bike! Oh my god, Dad is going to kill me. Mike, keep up! I'm coming! The winds at Niagara Falls could be unpredictable. The balloon was really moving now, narrowly missing some power lines, and continuing through his neighborhood as others started to notice. Oh, Jesus, Murphy, what was that? You ever seen something like that before? But look, it's the Cameron boys again. You see that? It's so high. The boys made it out to a main road at the edge of their neighborhood, and they were having trouble keeping up. Don't let it... We're so dead. Oh, nobody say anything. Oh, no. Guys, guys, look out. Fire trucks, get out of the road. Uh-oh. Mike, get off the road. Oh, my God. Dad's gonna kill me. The next morning, James' creation was in the newspaper. The Niagara Falls Review. UFO hoax startles Chippewa. Everyone at school knew. And James was dreading his father getting home from work. James Francis! A petrified James emerged from his bedroom with a science fiction novel in hand, thumbing the pages nervously as he walked to the kitchen. You want to tell me what you were thinking? Well, I learned in school about hot air rising. This could have started a fire and killed someone. Jim, do you realize that? Yeah. But Not to mention hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage if they set anyone's houses on fire? Yeah. Jimmy, why would you do this? His mother, Shirley, was an artist and had always supported his creativity. But if even she was upset, James knew he'd gone too far. Suddenly, he realized the book in his hands was a target for his dad's frustration, like a red cape to a bull. He tried to hide it behind his back. What's that? Is that more of this science fiction garbage? No, it's just a book. This belongs in the trash. It's mental junk. Philip, is that really necessary? It's rotting his brain, Shirley. Don't throw it away. This has nothing to do with the book. A UFO had nothing to do with these books you're reading? No, it was science. It's not science. It's just fiction. It's a hot air balloon. I thought you'd be proud of me. You can't just go off doing things like this, and especially without telling anyone. And getting Mike and the other boys in on this? Do you have any idea how much damage that could have done? Lit candles landing on someone's house? James already knew what he'd done wrong. He should have tied down the balloon with a string. Instead, this whole project was a disappointment. You're grounded. Two weeks. To your room. James would fish his book out of the kitchen trash overnight. He'd done it before. Just wipe off the coffee grounds and spaghetti. He had a bookshelf in his room filled with other science fiction novels and comic books. 
His dad was right, it was inspiring. Science fiction inspiration. Starship Troopers, Fahrenheit 451, and Arthur C. Clarke short stories especially. One of those, The Sentinel, would inspire a film coming out later that very summer that would become James' new favorite, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Episode 3. February 9th, 1981. The first day of filming on Piranha 2, the first real movie of James Cameron's career. He was 26 years old and had made friends with actor Lance Henriksen, who played the police chief. They'd walked to a nearby coffee shop. Good day, Mr. Cameron. Morning, Winston. Two coffees, please, one black. Uh, Lance, how do you like your coffee? Cream and sugar, please. You heard the man, cream and sugar, please. Thank you, sir. I'll have it all for you right away. Thank you, Winston. Look at these pants. They don't even fit. You're supposed to look like a police chief in these. Costume gave you those? Costume? We don't have a budget for costumes. Of course we don't. These are mine. Uh, I got an idea. Hey, Winston. Yes, Mr. Cameron. Uh, those pants have a blue stripe down the side of them? Uh, yes. Would you be willing to sell them to us? And, and the shirt, too. Lance, we could uh, tuck in the shirt, give you a badge or something on the chest pocket. Uh, what do you think, Lance? Looks about the right size. Winston, how much will these cost you to replace? Uh, $40, sir. We'll give you 75 Lance had found a silver Save the Whales pin and stuck it onto the shirt upside down, just above the chest pocket to look like a badge from a distance. Problem solved. But James' own problems were only beginning. Cut. Let's do that again. James would sometimes shoot four or five takes until it was right. Too many by the standards of producer Ovidio Asinitis. But it was hard to film, especially the scenes on a boat, when the sun and ship's angle were constantly moving. Cut. The light changed. Let's go again. James was trying to match up the shots for easy editing. A video reviewed James' footage shot every day and would call him in to ask about shots he skipped or didn't have time to shoot. Jim, there's supposed to be a close-up here. Why didn't you get it? James would try to shoot them the next day, but 12 days in, he was already behind with a crew that spoke only Italian, slowing down everything even further. James, you need to get me those shots. No time for big Hollywood movie. James was a little annoyed. He was the director here, and a video was asking for shots James knew he'd never use anyway. But he continued to try, falling further behind schedule, trying to meet escalating demands. There just wasn't enough time in the day. Ovidio, it's Jim. Uh, come in. Jim, what is this? I tell you to get a close-up. I got a close-up. No. No, no, you did not. This is a small production. We do not have time for fancy American director to spend many days on this shit. What are you talking about? You have a director working with a crew that doesn't speak his language. I'm out there flipping through a fucking Italian dictionary, and I'm getting what you asked for. No. No, you are not, Jim. This is not working out. What, what do you want me to do? 
You want the shot. I'm out there getting the shot. You are fired, Jim. I, I'm... I'm fired? You're fired. What the hell, Ovidio? Jim, I'm sorry. I want you out of here. You're fired. Listen, Ovidio, let's just... You know what? Fine. I bust my ass for you to make this look great, and this is what happens? I'm in my hotel room making rubber fishes myself. Hey, you hey. have Lance running around with a gun. He had to carve out of hey, wood I've had himself, enough of this, and you can't this is even not... get him a fucking cop uniform. Enough! You go back to Hollywood where you can have 100 takes of every shot you want. You, you, you still be director, but I direct the rest of Piranha 2. You direct? You, yes, yeah, yes. Who is going to direct now with no director? You leave me no choice, Jim. I must direct. I hate to do it, but I must now. But you want to use my name still? We, we have to use your name, yes. It's, it's a nice thing for you. Director. If I leave, I don't want my name on James, this. James, come on. Come on, don't, don't be ridiculous, okay? I don't want it. Yes, yes, you do, James. You need me. <laughs> James, enough of this, huh? Enough! The truth was, Ovidio was known by his investors for having eccentric ideas, and movies could quickly spiral out of control. So Warner Brothers, which had a stake in his productions, insisted that he hire American directors to balance him out. James would eventually find out Ovidio had fired other directors before and had taken over. No, no, listen. If my name's on this, I want to be involved, start to finish. James, we just, we can't think about this, okay? Then take my name off the project. I... I can't do that at this time, okay? Then I guess I'll see you on set tomorrow. Despite James lobbying to keep his job, Ovidio took over directing duties and took away half of James' $10,000 fee, too. He'd tasked James with errands throughout the remainder of the production to keep him out of the process as the production moved to Rome for editing. James wasn't even allowed to see the footage, even what he'd personally shot. And without the salary he expected, he was running out of money. The production put him in a cheap hotel, but didn't pay for his meals, so James would squeak open his door in the middle of the night to steal rolls of bread off other guests' room service trays. He was restricted from seeing his own film, and James was spiraling into depression and malnutrition. <coughs> caught a glance of himself in the hotel mirror. Gaunt. He barely recognized himself. Oh, Jesus. I look like crap. <coughs> James had wanted to see Piranha 2 to the end. But for what? He wasn't allowed to see the footage. This job that started with so much promise to launch his career had blown up on him. He wasn't a Hollywood director now. He barely had a home. This was it, a ratty, empty hotel room on the other side of the world. No friends here, no hope. A disappointment to his father who had been right all along, and his health was getting worse. Soon James found himself bedridden with a fever, no one to take care of him. Each time he closed his eyes in his hotel room, another few hours would pass, unsure if he was dreaming or awake. He began to lapse into strange and vivid nightmares, James found himself on the ground in the middle of what looked like a disaster film. It was night and a smoky orange haze surrounded him. 
Sparks zapped and power modules exploded around him. This was once a power station. Now it was burning, lit ablaze by something. He could feel the ground vibrating. What is that? What is that? James tried to stand up. He was unable to stand, weak in the legs, but he had to get away. He dragged himself along the ground as a nearby power module exploded. Dazed, James turned around to see a man with an automatic rifle trained on him, about a hundred feet away. He tried to get up and run, but slipped on the ground. Some kind of oil leaking from the wreckage. James Cameron. What the? Oh my, oh my God. He shuffled backwards as fast as he could. You have been targeted for termination. What, what, me? No, 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 no. Oh, uh, shit, shit. Against the orange flames, James could see the man's dark silhouette growing bigger, now 50 feet away from him. Oh my god, I need a, I need a, I need a gun. I need a... James looked into the smoky haze to his left. Another module had exploded. It had blown him several feet away, but he was all right. Looking up, James saw a holster on the ground nearby. Inside it was a shotgun. James Cameron. James was pulling himself toward the weapon as the man marched closer, now 20 feet away. Oh, come on. Come on now. Come on now. God damn it. Uh, come on, Jim. His fingers searched frantically for a handle on the wooden shoulder stock of this weapon and finally slid into place on the trigger. James swung the gun into position for a shot. James Cameron. Five feet away. It was now or never. The shotgun blast had blown a hole in the man and sent him flying into a pile of debris in the flames. Holy shit. Oh my god. What is that? What the fuck? Is he still alive? A metal arm grasping a knife reached out of the fire. It was stripped of its flesh, chrome metallic bones beneath, and now moving toward him again. The arm stabbed the knife against the ground, pulling forward a metal skeleton face out of the fire. Glowing eyes looking at James. A severed torso still dragging itself toward him. James Cameron. Oh, no, 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 oh no. You are for termination. Oh, oh no, oh no, oh no. <sighs> It was 2 a.m. in his Rome hotel room, and his bed was a pool of sweat. He wasn't sure if he was sweating from the fever or from the panic. This unrelenting robot that would stop at nothing to kill him. It was one of the most nightmarish dreams he'd ever had. Are you kidding me? That was... That was a dream. I need to write. He wrote and sketched these visions of doom. This robot had a name, the Terminator. (sighs) 
After several days developing a treatment for a story about a robot sent from the future to kill, James felt he was onto something. If anyone had his back, it'd be his agent, who he'd landed after getting hired on Piranha 2, someone he was still lucky to have considering he'd just been fired. In fact, the agency barely took him in the first place. Jim, buddy, how are you? So good to hear from you. I was just talking about you. How's Rome? Not uh, the way I always dreamed it would be. Well, isn't that always the truth? Yeah. Uh, hey, listen, I'll be back next week, but I had this fever dream the other night that led me to this great story idea. Sure, buddy. I'm all ears. You listening? So it's, it's a robot hitman, okay, you know, relentless. And the story is he's sent from the dystopian future to the modern day. We can shoot it in Los Angeles, so no big location shoots, you know. It'll be cheaper. Mm-hmm. Are you, you listening? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm listening. So in the hey, future... you mind if I eat while we're... I have listened. I, uh, I barely have a minute today, but... Go ahead, I'm listening, I'm listening. Okay, so, so in, the, in the future, there's a big civil war going on between robots and humans, and this one robot's mission is to kill mankind's great resistance leader before he's born. So it's it's trying to kill his mother. Yeah. And the, and the thing is, a human soldier also comes back in time to try to protect her, so there's this cool time travel component where we're not sure if there's such a thing as fate or not, but the future of mankind all rests on the shoulders of this ordinary woman. Uh-huh, sure. Best part is, it's all present day, so we can shoot it in LA for cheap. We, we don't need any big name actors or anything, and I want to direct it. Yeah, I got screwed over here, man. You know that. I need to direct this myself. I know how to do it. Uh, Jim, I don't think so. What, what do you mean? Why not? Well, buddy, you know I'm a big fan, but um, you just got fired and not getting any shots they needed. I got the shots. He just wanted to direct himself. His story is you didn't get the shots. Uh, plus, this is a dream you had. That's not really a story. Excuse me, aren't, aren't you supposed to be helping me? Yeah, but come on, Jim. You just got fired. James was crushed. This idea had pulled him out of a depression, given him hope his career might continue. Now even his agent, who made a 10% commission, was shooting down his ideas. It made him angry, just like his dad saying his career would never work out. It made him want to prove them all wrong. Listen, it's a bad idea, okay? Just do something else. I have another idea. There you go, buddy. Way to rebound. You're fired. Huh? You're firing me? I'm making this movie, and I'm making it without you. When James returned from Rome, he had no money, no job, no agent, and nowhere to stay. He visited his parents at home, and his father agreed to let him use the old family sedan. There you are, son. Thanks, Dad. I really appreciate you doing this. Listen, do you have money? I, um, I'm trying to get some things going, yeah. Hey, Mr. Cameron! Jim, why don't you stay with us a little while? Oh, I have a, I have a little 
place to stay. That wasn't really true, but James didn't want to move back in with his parents and his dad who'd take it as proof Hollywood wasn't for him. His old buddy Randy Frakes had offered to let James stay with him. Jim, this film thing, maybe it's it's time to look for another career. No, While you have Dad, the time, you're so talented in other things, you could be... I just... I need to... Something in computers, maybe. They're hiring people like you. The suggestion angered James. He understood his dad thought of him as a failure. Just another 20-something who'd thrown his life away chasing a ridiculous dream. It had fractured their relationship and pulled at James because he loved his dad. He wanted to make him proud. Dad, I, I know you think I'm making a mistake. I might be. The film business But is... I need to see this through. There's so few people make it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a movie. I'm going to direct it. I'm going to make it in this industry, Dad. Okay, son. Give my best to Mom. Of course. James would drive about 30 minutes to a tiny little house in Pomona, California. His old pals Randy Frakes and Bill Wisher were there to greet him. There he is. Hey, guys. Good to see you guys. Bill, how's it going? Good, man. We've missed having you around. Here, let me give you a hand. Glad you made it, man. That night, the trio huddled on a cozy backyard patio around a concrete and tile patio table. James, just like the James of old, had brought a notepad with him as he pitched them the Terminator, just like he had with his agent. This is really a story of real science fiction, you know? What ifs? What if AI got so advanced, it tried to exterminate humankind and with these big spectacle action scenes, you know? But, but it's really uh, about something deeper, how this affects the future of the species. As James spoke, Randy and Bill leaned further and further forward, completely enthralled by this story. From the future, Whoa. he's here on an assassination mission. A perfect blend of James' interests and talents. Terminator crawls after Sarah in the end scene. She traps him inside a piece of industrial equipment that finally crushes him. Oh. Sarah's transformation is complete from waitress to a triumphant female heroine, and she gives birth to her son, who we of course now know represents the resilience of the human race. So, the end. <laughs> Well, that is a great fucking idea. Oh, you have to do that, Jim. Yes, do that. <laughs> Randy and Bill were blown away by their friend's story. James asked them both to help him write the script, particularly Bill, who for several weeks would read scenes over the phone to James on the other end for him to transcribe. James once again survived on ramen noodles and coupons his mom would send him for buy one, get one free Big Macs from McDonald's. He'd ration them out one per day, it wasn't healthy, but it was cheap, and it kept him writing. I'll come back. No. I'll be back. I'll be back. There was a new sense of dedication, obsession, to earning his place here in Hollywood, and his friends all noticed it. He would absolutely make his movie The Terminator or he would die trying. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode.
Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Do you have a director in mind? Yeah. Me. Oh. On the next episode of Blockbuster. Don't you... It's, it's got to be me, or it won't be done right. James finds a perfect producing partner. It's open. <laughs> Bloody hell! who helps pitch his movie in true James Cameron fashion. Someone calling the police? I don't really know this guy, James Cameron. James Cameron. And the lunch meeting that made an action movie icon. Mr. Cameron. Arnold. That's coming up on episode four of Blockbuster. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. And this is Peter Bavitz, the sound designer. I'm producer Elena Bavitz. And I'm Fernando Arroyo Lascurain, the composer. And this is our creator chat about episode three. You just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. And uh, this was the first episode with a flashback, the hot air balloon in Chippewa, Ontario. And uh, at the time, in the late 1960s, Chippewa was known as this little town close to Niagara Falls. You could actually hear the rushing of the water and... Peter, I think uh, we even built that into the sound design. Yeah, it, it's it's a very nice sequence, the first five minutes of that episode. We start off with with the description of, you know, Ontario, Chippewa, and, and you can hear in the very far distance uh, the, 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 the waterfall. But it's also the, the childhood memories that, that we're trying mm-hmm. to describe here. So um, it's not accidental the way the birds chirp, right? It's Bambi. And uh, and everything else that's happening, it's really a montage of just to let the audience know like what what this kid is about, you know. And it's a really fun story that, to be honest, music really pushed through here. And Fernando, the music is the most adventurous we've heard so far as well. And I love this cue that really gets us going at the start of this uh, this entire mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, this was an extremely fun cue to write. It took a while and some trial and error, an error, but it was really fun to write because um, we're writing through the perspective of children who see everything larger than life. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the music needed to represent that and it really needed to bring us into the state of mind that a kid would be when they're building a balloon with their friends and see it as this epic endeavor. Yep. Um, and the music really tried to represent that, especially as we get further into the sequence and it becomes more action-driven. Um, and a few of the inspirations for this is definitely uh, some of John Williams' music, especially that famous bike scene from... Right, at the end of E.T. E.T., exactly. Because there's this childlike uh, wonder to that sequence. And I wanted to capture that and tie it in a little bit to you know, what we saw with Spielberg in the previous season. And um, it was a really fun cue to write. This is the first time that we actually developed James's theme and heard it more present as well as the parents' theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, we opened the cue just with James's theme in a very uh, relaxed manner and kind of doing exactly what Peter talked about, bringing us back into that period, into those childhood memories. And when they're finally the balloon starts to uh, take flight, we hear James's theme in its most epic form yet. And uh, Elena, a flashback like this also means we have to bring in the right actor to be young James Cameron. That can't be Ross also. (laughs) So 
we we it's tough to find uh, uh, the the right actor for something like that, especially when you need him to kind of match who the other the other actor is playing grown up James Cameron. Exactly. This is the biggest challenge. Like, how do you because you have two different people? How do you make them? How do you cast them in such a way that they are that you can out of, you know, when you're listening as an audience that you can tell, well, this is the younger version of older James Cameron that uh, we're listening to throughout the series. Mm. Um, so you and I worked with our casting director, Johnny Gitcom, to find the right person for this. Uh, we initially thought that because the young James is, you know, he's a kid, he's excited about science, he is young, that he should be more expressive, um, you know, full of wonder, so to say. But that approach didn't mm -hmm. quite seem to mesh as well with Ross Marquand's performance, which was more realistic and grounded. And we just loved Ross so much that we really wanted to find someone who could embody that same level of leadership and direction. Yeah, uh, we came across Evan Jose Wright, a teenager who turns out didn't know who James Cameron was by name, <laughs> uh, except yeah. the Avatar guy, I think, <laughs> yeah. uh, kids these days. But his his mom said uh, Evan was a huge fan of The Terminator, mm -hmm. and he didn't know that that was James' movie. So we were there when he found out, and his mom said, you know who James Cameron is, and he got he got all, so excited about it and it all connected, uh, which was a cool little little moment during production. It, it was actually really fun because it kind of came out natural because he didn't know who, he was just being a you know great kid, great actor, and and it was only when he learned who James Cameron was, I think it really actually made his character so good that he mm -hmm. didn't fully understand like who he's going to become. You know, this child yep. wonder type of thing. Um, the really interesting thing about this episode also um, is the Terminator sequence itself, right? The nightmare. Uh, I mean, nightmare. Yeah. I mean, that one was in the script from the beginning. And I remember, I mean, Matt, you told me you did so much research on that whole thing. And the fact that this actually happened, this is incredible. It's something very unique to approach because it's not real life, right? How does a dream sound? How does a nightmare sound? So Because all of this series to this point mm -hmm. is things that are literally happening. And in this case, it's something that only occurred in someone's head when they were fast asleep. Yeah. And at the same time, you don't want it to be a unbelievable dream. You want it to be an experience. So I guess that, that was the fun yep. part, right? To make it a, a visceral, to give it a visceral feeling, um, to capture it. You know, it's impossible to capture it in a documentary style, right? So we had to recreate it. And we just went kind of all out with it. Exploding power stations, sparks everywhere. And then that dark figure approaching James. You know, the the sketch of Terminator in a way. And we kind of left him on, pur on purpose imperfect. You know, he wasn't 100% Terminator because we... I think from my perspective as a sound designer, I didn't want him to be the complete picture of the Terminator. I want I wanted him to be the 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 vision that later grew to become the Terminator. So I yep. I think James's genius is is just the fact that after that whole nightmare, he got up and he wrote the whole thing down in such yep. details that he was able to recall it and make a movie out of it later, which I mean I dream a lot. I don't remember anything an hour after I wake up. So <laughs> right. good job, James Cameron. <laughs> you got to write it down. And Bill Wisher and Randy Frakes both talked about that. They said James always loved his dreams and especially the nightmares because they were so vivid. Um, and he would write them down. And in this case, it was something that really launched his career. 
This week's uh, bonus interview is with the one and only Roger Corman, uh, the mm. first person to hire James Cameron. And uh, we hope you'll tune in and hear a bit more about what he saw in James way back then uh, as he was building models and uh, these spaceship designs and painting sets and how James convinced Roger to give him a ton of new responsibility, which is unheard of even in Roger Corman's studios when a lot of people came in a lot of people passed through is responsible for you know Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and some of these other people but James really uh started to rise to the top quickly um and Roger talks about that it's really interesting to get a chance to sit across from him in his uh in his studio and that'll be coming out in a couple days here but for now, I think for all of us here, Fernando, Peter, Elena, I'm Matt Schrader. Uh, be sure to rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcast, and uh, share us with a friend. And we'll see you again after episode four. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod or visit us online to support the creators at GetBlockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.